Well, this morning as I was driving in, uh, I love my drive-in. I, I live in Brownsville, and uh, often uh, on the way in, I get to experience kind of a, a cool sight. Now, I'm not really a morning person. I don't get up early except for a couple times a week. Uh, I, I kind of think, you know, 8 o'clock is a great time to wake up myself. Um, however, there are times when I have to come into town much earlier than that, and this morning, Sundays are typically one of those, and this morning was the classic example of, of coming uh, down Brownsville Road uh, before we get to Rock Hill, and as, uh, as I drive, there's a couple little hills that you go over, and as you reach the top of the hills, you can look out over the valley, and you can see that low layer of fog you know, here and there, the patchy, uh, just right along the ground. And, and every time I see that, I'm reminded of, of my kind of visualization of uh, some stories from the Bible. And, and typically, uh, it comes in the form of the battles uh, from Scripture and battles, wars that were fought. And, and I always picture uh, these two armies, you know, on one side, one on one hillside, one on the other, and the low valley in between, and the fog kind of clearing, and the armies get a good look at each other. Well, this week that happened to me, and, and uh, it reminded me of a story from Scripture uh, uh, that took place not actually that long, I mean, maybe a couple hundred years, but again, in the scope of Scripture, not that long, after the story I talked about last week with the children of Israel escaping Egypt. Uh, by this time, the nation had been established, uh, in a sense. They had their boundaries. They had uh, driven out most of the people from the land, of the promised land, and they had set up shop, and, and they were the nation of Israel, in a sense. However, they didn't feel quite like a nation because they were a little different than the surrounding countries and, and, and people groups in that they didn't have a king. They wanted a king. They wanted to feel like they were a real nation, a real power, that they had someone to, to lead them and to, to protect them and to, to guide them and lead them to war. And so they went to God and they asked for a king, and, and God said, are you guys sure you want a king? And the prophet Samuel said, listen, the, the problem with the king is that, one, you're, you're kind of insulting God because God has led you well. And, and two, a king is going to bring with it certain uh, a price. And that price is that they will demand your children, your sons, to fight in their armies. They will levy taxes upon you to support their courts and their palaces and, and their whatever agenda they may have. They're, you're going to require to be servants to the king, portions of your crops. Uh, there's going to be a price to pay. But the people didn't listen, and they demanded the king. In 1 Samuel verses eight, or chapter 8, verse 19, it says, But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Another nation jumps off a bridge. Are you going to jump off a bridge too? Right? That's, yes, they're saying. We want to be like those other nations. We want a king. So the Lord allowed them to have a king. And he appointed them a man named Saul to be their king. And they thought this was great, but Saul was not an ideal king, neither in terms of his faithfulness to God or his defense of his people. Soon after appointing Saul as king, the Israelites would learn this lesson. And once again, they were called to battle against their local enemies, the Philistines. 
And the Philistines and the Israelites went to war, and they faced off in a valley called the Valley of Elah. And this is the picture that I had this morning and, and many mornings when I drive into town, looking across the hillside and seeing that fog and, and visualizing it opening up and the armies of the Philistines across. The armies of the Philistines were large, and not just in terms of numbers, right? They were, they were actually large men, giants that were counted in their numbers. And there at the Valley of Elah, King Saul failed in his primary role as defender and protector of his people. You see, there was a giant there in that army named Goliath. You've probably heard this story before. Uh, Goliath stood up and he cast insults against the people of Israel. And he degraded God and blasphemed God. And the people of Israel, the armies of Israel were afraid, but not only were they afraid, but their king cowered before the taunts of Goliath as well. And as he was fearful for his life and his protection, that that, that fear that he had spread among his armies, among his people, the king himself was afraid. So enter into the picture a young shepherd boy named David. David, visiting the Israelite armies to bring food to his family members who were fighting in the army and other provisions. It would be up to this little boy, probably not that little, but still a young man, to save his people. David heard the taunts of the Philistines. He heard the mocking of the giant, the blasphemy that was uttered and screamed across the valley. No one would respond. Nobody would step up. No one objected and said, that's not right. If they were, if they did feel that way, they weren't willing to actually do anything about it. But not David. Not David. Not this shepherd boy. David made up his mind to deal with the problem. When David asked to face Goliath in one-on-one battle on Israel's behalf, King Saul at first dismissed him. And said, well, who are you that you would fight a giant? But this brave young man, he told the king that he already knew what it meant to defend the fearful and the helpless. In First Samuel chapter 17, it says, But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go. And the Lord be with you. The mighty king sending a shepherd boy out to do his job. And we know the outcome of this story. Uh, It's been celebrated for thousands of years, whether you're a Christian or a Jew or not. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. It's been used as an illustration in times of war, in the struggles of life, and quite frequently in the locker room pregame of a football game or two. The mighty have fallen to the hands of the small but determined. You know, but the the picture I get from this story of David and Goliath is is a little different. The, The mighty that have fallen isn't Goliath. 
It's the king. It's a little different perspective. The mighty that fell that day was the king of Israel and his fighting men. A shepherd, a young boy, rose to the challenge and defended his people in the honor of his God. A shepherd, a young shepherd, a shepherd who had spent his days, his youth, tending to a bunch of stinky animals, right? Risking his life, his family's livelihood, defending a flock that couldn't defend themselves. This is the picture that I see in this story. A young shepherd rising to the challenge when when the king, the mighty, could not. And I believe that this is a picture that we see in the New Testament as well when the Apostle John records these words in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees didn't understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You know, I I admit that this week as I began my study of this passage in in John, that I kind of had a a preconceived idea of what Jesus was saying when he said, I am the gate. Because, you know, I think that it's probably uh, fairly accurate for us to see Jesus as as kind of the, the doorway, the pathway that we get to heaven. Right? He's the gate. You enter through the gate to, to get to heaven. But that's really not the picture that in this passage that he's painting. We'll get to that, right? We'll, in our study of the I am statements of Jesus, we'll get there. And that's, that's not an inaccurate representation of who Jesus is. But in this passage, I, I don't think that that's exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate when he says, I am the gate. Or maybe in your translation, I am the door. I believe that what we're looking at here is a story of a shepherd who protects his flock. A shepherd who takes care of his sheep. A shepherd who's been around his sheep so much, is so familiar with them, that they know his voice and they respond to it. A shepherd who cares so much for his flock that he would risk his own life for a bunch of of smelly sheep. And that's remarkable. Here we see a picture of Jesus, our shepherd, as our protector, you know what that makes us, right? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> a bunch of smelly sheep, right? And that <laughs> next week we'll talk about that maybe some more. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble yet. So what I see here is is a picture of Jesus as the gate, is a picture, a representation of Jesus as our protector. So why protector? Well, 
there's a there's a story. I've heard this story in the past, and I actually looked it up, and and uh, I couldn't verify exactly if it's completely accurate, but I did find it in several of my commentaries that are scholarly research commentaries. It's a story about how shepherd took care of their sheep during the time of the Israelites, the Jews, in New Testament period. The shepherd would would kind of uh, tend to their flock out in the wilderness. They weren't uh, in a pasture like we have today. They'd be uh, roaming through the wilderness. And, and at night, and in times when the, the shepherd would find maybe a, a good place for them to eat for a while, he would construct a, a somewhat of a sheep pen using brush or natural boulders, trees, the like. And he would usher his sheep into this sheep pen for their protection. Now, what he would do at nighttime, when it was time for him to rest, is he would lay down with his sheep in the doorway, in the opening. Instead of having a gate that someone could open up and close while he was sleeping, he would lay in that pathway as protector of his sheep. If anyone was to come in, they would have to come over the top of the shepherd. Or if any of the sheep were to try to get out, they would have to step over the top of their shepherd, the protector. And so I see that Jesus in this role is our gate, is our protector of the flock, us. So what does Jesus protect us from? That's the question. What is Jesus? There are a lot of things that he protects us from. But there's actually one thing I'd like to focus in on this morning, of what Jesus protects us from. It's a word that's found in the Bible over 500 times, a topic, maybe one of the most discussed topics in all of Scripture, and it's not money. So you're off the hook this week. Okay, Uh, Money's found a lot, right? The constant Jesus teaches on money a lot, but there's something actually that comes up even more than that, actually by about five times as frequently, and that is the concept of fear, the idea of fear. Jesus protects us from fear. Fear is very common. Uh, all of us are faced with some sort of fear on, on a daily basis. In fact, I, I went out on, online this week, and this is a verified fact on Google. Okay, that the, I have a list for you this morning of the top ten phobias or fear that people have, and I, I have a slide. Uh, let's see if you can identify some of these. Um, here we go. Uh, some of these words are so crazy. I had to make a cheat sheet, so I'm going to pull that out. All right, here we go. Arachnophobia. Spiders, okay? That's the number one fear that was listed on Google. As, uh, as so take that for what it is, all right? But arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, number one. Uh, aphidophobia, phidophobia. What do you think? What's uh, next after spiders is probably what? Snakes, yep. That's the fear of snakes, all right? So arachnophobia, spiders, aphidophobia, snakes, uh, acrophobia, height, okay? Very good, heights. Uh, agoraphobia, open space. Okay, that's that one was kind of weird to me. I was open space. There are a lot of people that are feared of or crowds or open space. Okay, next one, cynophobia, fear of dogs. Okay, fear of dogs. A lot of people out there are afraid of dogs. Uh, how about this one, astrophobia? Any idea there? That's the fear of thunder and lightning. Okay, fear of thunder, thunder and lightning. Uh, claustrophobia, the fear of claustros. Yeah, no, no, small spaces, confined spaces, mesophobia, that's uh, also called germophobia, okay, the, the fear of germs, aerophobia, heights, or uh, fly, I'm sorry, not heights, flying, 
Okay, or like hot air balloons uh, flying, being out of control in the sky, going like a thousand miles an hour. I don't know why you'd be afraid of that. Uh, trypophobia. This was the tenth. This was the tenth highest, and this one sh- kind of surprised me. Ever heard of that one? This is the fear of tiny holes. I don't know why you'd be afraid of tiny holes. You're not going to fall into them. But these are like uh, like if you think of. Um, like a flower or a pod of something that has like a lot of little holes. Uh, they're afraid of things crawling out of holes at them. Okay, that's kind of a weird thing, but that's an actual phobia that someone has. Now, when I say that Jesus is our protector, I really didn't have in mind these ten things, right? There's not too many verses in Scripture that, that say, take comfort, for the Lord will protect this aircraft, Right? But the, the general principle is we, we are a society that is fearful. Okay? And when people list their fears, they usually tend to go in this direction. And they, they tend to list their fears of spiders and snakes, heights, confined spaces. But the big fears of mankind aren't about things like that. The things of like this, fear of failure. Right? People are afraid to fail. Why are they afraid to fail? Because they don't want to be they don't want to be seen as not good, not accomplished, right? Uh, fear of failure keeps us from trying, keeps us from giving our all to something. I struggled with this as a student in, in high school and college. Now, I, I was afraid to fail. I was afraid to give my all and to not succeed at it, to give everything I have and get a C or a D or an F. I could get by pretty well by giving a half effort and get a C. And I could always tell myself, hey, I only gave half an effort and I got a C. Well, that's pretty good. What would happen if I gave my all? I didn't know because I didn't give my all, right? Because I was afraid that if I did and got a C, that I'd be a disappointment. Right? I was able to overcome that as I grew as a student, but that's a common thing. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, it says, For God has given us a spirit not of fear, not of fear, but of power and self-control. And God has given you the spirit to live within you, and that spirit provides us with the ability to overcome things like fear of failure. What's another common fear? How about fear of rejection? Okay, fear of rejection. Fear of rejection keeps us from growing our relationships and deepening them. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had someone who just wouldn't go to that next step in a relationship and kept it very surface? Maybe they're everyone's best friend, it seems, but just surface deep. Often those type of people have a fear of rejection, that once you get to know me, you're not going to like me. So why would I open up and be who God made me to be? Because I don't like who I am. I have a fear of this rejection. In Proverbs 27, verse 10, there's a verse that I'm sure it came, the, the saying, a face only a mother could love, came from this verse, right? Proverbs 27, though my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Okay? That even if I have a face only my mother could love, right? And even if she abandons me, what does it say? God's going to be there. God accepts you. God will receive you. Even though, even if those who are closest to us abandon us. What's another fear? How about fear of the unknown? Fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown keeps us worrying, doesn't it? 
Okay, we're always worried about the future when we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Proverbs 3, verse 5. How about this? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what? What do we have to worry about the future? What will take place when we acknowledge him, when we commit ourselves to him? He will set our path straight or direct our paths. See, he's not going to take us where he won't keep us safe, right? It may not be easy, may be rough, but he's going to take us, he's going to be with us as he leads us. He's going to be the one that directs our path. Here's the last one. Fear of responsibility. Fear of responsibility. I've seen this a lot. Working with young men, you see a lot of people, a lot of young men who have a fear of responsibility. That fear of coming of age, of abandoning their boyishness and becoming a man. We talked about this up at our men's retreat a couple weeks ago, about stepping up and leaving being a boy behind and stepping up and being a man. Uh, And that's a struggle. That's a struggle for a lot of young men to become men. This fear of responsibility keeps us from committing, uh, you know, committing to relationships, committing to an occupation, committing to to just being a Christian. We have a fear of the responsibility that comes with it. In Psalms 37, 5, it says, commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do it. See, commitment is something that God desires from us. He wants us to commit to him. But I love this in Psalms 34, 8. Psalm 34, 8 has a great verse when it comes to this. And I've shared this with many uh, people over the years that were, were concerned, especially when it came to committing to Jesus for the first time. And they were, they were just worried. They weren't quite sure. They didn't really know what it meant. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see. Try and see. Taste him and see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. See, we have lots of fears in our life. And God is our, our Jesus himself says, I am the gate. I am the protector of your soul. And I will be with you. I will help you in this. So here's uh, three things real quick before we end this morning. Three things that Jesus will do to be your protector. The first is that he will strengthen you. Okay, he will strengthen you to help you face your fears. He will strengthen you. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you, and he will protect you from the evil one. That's a promise. That's a guarantee. He will help you face your fears and he will protect you. Second one, he'll be by your side through the battle. Okay, he will protect you. He will strengthen you. He'll be by your side in the battle. In Deuteronomy chapter 31 and Hebrews chapter 13, both of those chapters include a verse that says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. I will never leave you. And it doesn't say, I will leave you, even when the things are good, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a little break and go to the side. Right? And go, go take a little vacation while you're okay. No, in the good and the bad, he says, I'll be there for you. I will walk beside you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Third one, he will strengthen you. He will be by your side through the battle. He's already won the victory. He's already fought the battle for you and declared you the winner. Last week we read 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 through uh, just actually just verse 24 I'm going to include verse 25 this week. It says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live 
for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. In other words, because he's already won the victory, you get to experience the reward. He fought, he died, you win. Verse 25. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I love that verse. Right? What is Jesus? He is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. You know, we began this series a few weeks back by looking at an interaction that Jesus had with his disciples one day. And he said to them, who are the people saying that I am? And, and there was a varied response. There was no consensus among the people about who Jesus was. And so he asked his, his disciples, well, then who do you say that I am? You hear all these things out there? What about you? You've lived with me. You've heard me teach. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered. And he said, Jesus, you're my Lord and you're my Savior. Each of us face this same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus tells us that he's a few things. He tells us that he is the bread. That he is our provider and the sustainer of life. Jesus tells us that he is the light of the world, our comfort in the dark, our rescuer from bondage, and our deliverer into freedom. And Jesus tells us that he is the gate, the protector, guardian of our souls. Peter said that day that Jesus was his Lord and his Savior. But who do you say that he is? Who's Jesus to you? Let's pray. Father, we are, again, so grateful for the love that you have for us. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. And it's odd to think of the one who died as the one who protects, but that's exactly what he did when he suffered and bled and died and won the victory for us on the cross. And so this morning, Father, as we go from here, I just pray that if any of us face any of these fears that we've talked about, the fear of failure, the fear of, of commitment, or even a fear of something as simple or silly as spiders, Father, you promise to strengthen us. You promise to equip us, to walk beside us. And you've already won the victory for us. And we're so grateful for that. In your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning... Uh, we have a new memory verse. Yep. It's going to be an easy one this week. It's only, it's pretty short. It comes from Proverbs, taking us back to the Old Testament. Proverbs 8.35. I'd like to challenge you to memorize this this month. Let's say it together. I have it right here. For those who find me, find life, and receive favor from the Lord. Let's say it one more time. For those who find me, find life, and receive favor from the Lord. Okay, next one is this. I'd like you to read John 10 this week. Next week, our sermon is actually going to be from John 10 as well. And so read John 10 this week, and I would like you to meditate on this passage. I'm not sure if you ever practiced this uh, idea of Scripture meditation before, but it says to meditate on God's Word day and night. That means we take it into our mind and we just think about it. We try to listen to what God is leading us to do based on that passage. So read John 10 this week, meditate on it, and ask yourself this. Do you know the voice of your shepherd? Are you one of his sheep? Then you should know his voice, right? How do we know his voice if we're not listening to him?
This morning, we're going to sing one more song. And we have a time of an opportunity to respond. The response could be in varied ways. We mention it every week. It could be that we need to accept Jesus as our protector, as our provider, and as our Lord and Savior as well. And we'd like to offer you that opportunity this morning. But it could be that uh, you just need prayer or you need someone to talk to. That's why we're here as well. We also use this time as a response to uh, giving back to what uh, to the Lord for the work that is being done here. Not just here at Southside, but the work that is being done in the name of Jesus all over the world. And this morning, we have something I'd like to point out that's, uh, that's uh, kind of a special occasion for us here at Southside. This week and next week, we have an opportunity to assist Todd and Jessica Moore. Uh, they have a couple needs that have come up where they need some special assistance. They're working on a project right now to translate God's word into the Mian language. Actually, I think it's already been translated. They're going to kind of reprint a bunch of Bibles so that they can distribute Bibles in the, the people's language, which is the Mian uh, language. The Mian language is one of the main languages spoke in China, Laos, Vietnam, and Thailand. So there's a lot of people that speak this language around the world. And the total cost to print this, uh, reprint this Bible is about $24,000. However, they've done their work, and they've been out there, and they've raised a lot of money. And they're almost to the finish line. And they need about $1,600 more. $1,600. And so over the next uh, two weeks, we're going to try to raise some money for them. Not only do they have that, but they also uh, they only, they don't have a car where they're at in, in, in Southeast Asia. They have a motorcycle. Well, they had a motorcycle. They don't have a motorcycle anymore. It was stolen. And so we would like to be a blessing to them and help them to replace their stolen motorcycle. And that costs about $2,000 to replace that motorcycle. And so we feel like here at Southside that we can be a blessing to them and help them raise the about $3,600 necessary to get those Bibles finished printed and to replace their motorcycle. So I'd encourage you to pray about how you can help the Moors uh, this week or next week. And if you have any questions about it, if you'd like some more specifics, if you'd like to see a copy of the Mian Bible to see what it's like, Melva and some of the missions team will be out. There's a, there's a uh, table in the lobby where you can get some more information about the Moors and the work they're doing. So uh, let's pray for God's response or for our response to God this morning. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be here. We thank you for uh, the spirit that lives within each of us. And I just pray, Father, that as we worship you, as we learn about you, as we study your word and meditate on your word, that you will draw us to a different place than we're at right now. And this morning as we sing this song, we have an opportunity to respond to you. And I pray, Father, for clear direction on our hearts. Show us what we would do, what we need to do on your behalf this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> 